Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant. AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. I think it's dangerous. Like, first of all, let's just talk from strictly just from a communication standpoint, right, of us being humans in the world. Like, we should all be talking to each other, right? Discourse is important, especially between people who don't see eye to eye, who are, come from different places, right? Like, I think that's important. That's a value that I, that I have that I, that I think is very important. Second of all, let's talk about the danger of it. What, there is danger to sticking your head in the sand and just hoping someone's going to go away and not you know, shining a light on them. You know, I, I always say like, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? That's just, that's my viewpoint. That was Adam Balalau. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Hey everyone, uh, I try to start these shows with a bunch of information about this week's guest. I'm going to get to that, but I want to say at the top, the most important thing I could possibly say on this small platform that I have, which is the election. It happens November 6th. Most states have already uh, finished registration for voting. Uh, it is my hope that you have registered to vote if you have and you have family members and friends who have also registered to vote, please make sure that they uh, go out and do this. I do my best to avoid politics on this podcast, uh, mostly because I'm not a policy expert. I have no expertise or, or, or knowledge that should be listened to 
and heard, so I try my best to refrain, but I think this upcoming election, if I'm going to weigh in on it, it doesn't feel like it's about politics. It feels like it's about people. I know that's something uh, a senatorial candidate may be using in uh, his or her campaign pitch, but I believe it. And uh, chances are, if you're listening to this podcast, you believe it too. So whatever you can do this week to help those running in opposition to President Trump, I would uh, urge you to uh, to do that. And, 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 and if you are voting for someone who uh, is in support of Donald Trump, you know, you could just stay home. You could stay home and just have a nice night, maybe, you know, watch a movie on the television, have dinner with your kids, um, or you can go vote. I think uh, an active citizenry is important, but, uh, you know, come on, let, you know, let's get it together over here. So with that, uh, this week on the show is a pretty timely guest. It's my friend, uh, Adam Balalau. He is a documentarian. Uh, you may have seen a few of his movies, including The Carter, The Motivation, The New Radical, which came out last year. He's also made two fiction films in Bomb the System and Weapons. His latest movie is called Alt-Right, Age of Rage. It was a documentary that was made in the first year of Donald Trump's presidency, and it captures two distinct viewpoints. The first is Daryl Lamont Jenkins, an active Antifa activist who is combating uh, the alt-right movement, in this case, Richard Spencer. The film tracks both sides of today's political climate, uh, before ultimately culminating in the tragic events that went down in Charlottesville. I think it's a movie worth your time. Um, I will give a disclaimer. It is challenging and frustrating and agonizing at times to watch uh, Richard Spencer, who is uh, a pretty prominent alt-right leader, talk extensively about his program. I use the word program generously there. But regardless, I think it's important to hear both sides of the aisle. And uh, even if one of those perspectives is uh, especially infuriating. So Alt-Right Age of Rage is available on VOD and Blu-ray this Tuesday. Um, If you have the time, if you have the means, please go check that out. While we do hit on this movie in our conversation, Adam and I kind of talk about everything else for the first hour. We discuss indie filmmaking in the early 2000s, where he started in Nerd Film. We discuss his time working with Jim Jarmusch in the mid-2000s, and then uh, we work through his whole strange trajectory in and out of documentary film. So, finally, here is Adam Balalau. In 2002, you make um, Bomb the System. Right. Now, you're 23, I think, at at that time. So you're just coming out of college. You're given a budget of $500,000, somewhere close to that. Yep. What are you thinking at that age? You know, that's like a fair amount of money. You're young. You haven't made a feature. 
What's in your head at that point? Well, I, I remember really the reason that I jumped into it was 9-11. We actually started filming exactly a year after 9-11. I was in downtown. I was in downtown Manhattan during 9-11. And I, I, was, I had a job. I was working at Sony. And like I was basically like a PA. I was sort of like assistant editing trailers and promos and, and crap. And then I, I like had worked my way up to actually editing them a few and after 9-11 um you know I just abruptly quit my job and I was like I gotta I can't just like do this all my life like I I I gotta I want to make movies Mm -hmm. you know so I got together with a friend and you know the thing is the I remember the initially initially we spoke about doing the movie for fifty thousand dollars it somehow ballooned to 500,000 very quickly. <laughs> How did that happen? I don't know. But um, my friend who, you know, sort of partnered on the film from the very beginning, he was, you know, I was going to direct it, write it and direct it, and he was going to produce it. He came from money. Uh, he had a trust fund and his dad, his dad was actually there in the middle of the creation of the internet. So... He founded some big company that his name I can't remember that hasn't really been spoken of since the early nineties, but it was it had played an integral role in the creation of the internet. So so he had access to lots of money and I think that's how it just kept ballooning. Right. You know, I remember one at one point I realized it was it was getting out of control was when we hired the DP. Uh, ben Cutchins, who was the he, he was the best DP at out of NYU. Like everybody was talking about him, he was a hot commodity, and he came on board and he he basically was like, the only way I'm doing this is if we shoot 35 Panavision, and we we were going to do it on DV because we were all into that whole mini DV revolution. Right. Well, you were coming from the 90s generation of of you know sex lives and videotape and, and exactly, and. So we were going to shoot it on mini DV, but then he came on and he's like, no, we're, um, if I'm coming on, we're doing it 35 and we're doing a Panavision. And then all of a sudden the budget just like <laughs> right. doubled. That's how it balloons. Immediately. And, and then we made a lot of mistakes. We blew a lot of money. Yeah. We made a lot of huge mistakes. What were some of them? I remember one, one particular time a co-producer on the film bought like an insane amount of film from Kodak, like totally unnecessary amount. And they wouldn't let us return it. We had to like sell it on the market. And, you know, I, I remember it ended up costing us somewhere, somewhere like $60,000. And we had a lot of problems on the set of that film. Uh, with, with, uh, with the city city. Yeah. On day 25, we actually got shut down by the city and they, they told us, if we continued to shoot the film anywhere in the New York area, we'd be arrested. So we actually had to go on hiatus for like a week and figure out what we were going to do. And then we were able to quietly finish the film way out in Brooklyn. But I was actually blacklisted from shooting in New York for a long time after that. Mm. Did you not have permits? We did not have permits. We had permits for some stuff, but most of it we didn't have permits for. Um, there was also a lot of uh, graffiti writers that were hanging out on our set who weren't part of the film. Mm. They were drinking. They were, you know, tagging, destroying property, getting in fights. Yeah. Like 
sort of peripheral to our set. And so then we got blamed for, for all that. You had a uh, very serious and very real uh, money, but not an entirely uh, legitimate set. Yeah, the set was completely illegitimate. And there was no one with any real experience on the set. Like all the producers, it was their first film. Right. It was my first film. It was the DP's first feature. So basically... Did you feel like you could handle it? I did. Um, and I think that was because I was 23 and just really just operating purely off of just youth, ener- youthful energy, you know, <laughs> you don't, don't sleep for 28 days and just like barrel through it. But, uh, it, it, it is amazing that we were able to pull that, to pull that movie off. I, I'm especially interested in that week where you're shut down and this maybe uh, speaks larger to who you are, but the fact that it doesn't crumble in that week, I mean, are you frantic at that point? I, 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 do, I do recall being frantic. I do recall that I, I did have a panic attack at that point. I probably should have been hospitalized, but I remember I just slept for a few days and there was never any doubt that we weren't going to finish the film because we were we were on day 25 of 28. So, you know, we only had like a few more days. So there was no doubt we were going to finish it. It was just when and where. You finish the movie, it goes into post. You have your first like, what's it like to be in post-production? And then it plays some festivals. Our music supervisor was kind of a hot shot. And I remember him coming up to the edit room and um, he got us some cool music. We got a, we had a, a very early Mad Lib MF Doom track that he got. Um, he got a, a Chuck D, like a very early Chuck D uh, slash a Chuck D and Schoolie D like joint. Yeah. So I remember coming up to the edit room and he's and he was like, "Have you heard of the Tribeca Film Festival?" And it was in its second year. So the first year was sort of like, it was a big deal. Like everybody knew about it. Cause it's like, Oh, it's De Niro's festival. It's going to be, you know, all the proceeds are going to, you know, uh, nine 11 recovery and, and, and all that. Um, but that, but it, but it had, a, it got a lot of criticism for the programming. It was just bad, but this was the second year and he, the, our music supervisor was friends with the entire programming staff. And he's like, yeah, I've been telling them about your film. They want to program it. They want to put it in competition. And I hadn't even seen it yet. Right. And so <laughs> it, it went in it, it it went into competition. It went to it went to Tribeca and it got an insane amount of attention out of the festival. Like I'll never forget that we I mean we had we had an incredible variety review on the first night and and then a, a really incredible New York Times review, the best uh, uh, ever of my whole career. Um, but really? then it didn't, it didn't sell. Hmm. It didn't sell at all. And it took a year for it to sell. And it finally got picked up by Palm Pictures, which was a company owned by Chris Blackwell, who owned Island Records. And he took a personal liking to the film. And he I think he they paid about $150,000 advance and they put it in theaters. It it had a decent run, and they and they they it had a decent um, 
marketing spend. And, you know, it sort of, at that point, it really launched my career. Right. Where do you go after that? I mean, I know Weapons comes in 2007. So there's a five-year window. Where are you in New York at that point trying to make it as a director? How are you filling your time? Yeah, at that point, it's really it's really a gift and a curse to have like that kind of attention. I was getting tons of offers from the studios. There's tons of scripts and, and offers for films. Um, and I had I just got an agent at ICM and, um, like I remember I got offered this horror film that I can't even remember the name, but it starred, Kane from the WWE, the wrestler Kane. And it was shooting in like Australia. Oh. And it was like a huge budget. They just flat out offered it to me like a pay or play. And I I was I read the script and I was like, I remember getting on the phone with the producers and being like, This is garbage. Like there's nothing remotely scary about this film and the script is just terrible. Like I will <laughs> I would only come on if I could rewrite this thing from the, from page one. And they're like, well, but we shoot, we start shooting next week. And I'm like, yeah, all right, then forget it. And I was, I was really arrogant and I was really on this, like, fuck the studio system attitude. And I did the bottled water tour and I met with a lot of companies. Um, there were, you know, what's think, that? The bottled water. The bottled water tours when you like come out to LA, when you're sort of like have a lot of attention as a filmmaker, you come out to LA and like you go meet everybody and everywhere you go, like they give you a bottle of water, you know, so they call it the bottled water tour. And so I met everyone. Like I went to every studio. I met every single top exec at every studio. And I remember really wanting to do something with focus but that never that never came together. Hmm. But I, I didn't like any anyone else. I didn't like what anyone was doing. What do you remember about that tour? Was it just like, because you're 23, 24, 25, somewhere in that range. Yeah. You're like going to LA. I'm sure maybe you've been there before, but not in this kind of capacity. What's it like to sit into those meetings? It's a lot of hot air. I mean, the, the question everyone asked was, what's next? Like, what do you want to do next? And I'm trying to think of at the time, what was I working on? You know, I optioned a book from Adam Mansbach called Angry Black White Boy. And that was one of the like next projects that I was trying to get off the ground. It's a really amazing book. It was way ahead of its time. Like it would be, it would possibly get made now. Nobody wanted to touch it back then. It was basically about a white kid who through a series of bizarre circumstances becomes the next great black leader in America. <laughs> and it was, you know, it's, it's, it's about race relations, but it, it was a satire kind of like bamboozled. Mm. It had a lot of similarities to bamboozled and it ended with a, a race riot in times square. So it was an expensive movie 
Yeah. And, um, yeah, you know, I spent a few years trying to get that made and nobody got it. No one understood it at all. Right. So it didn't get made long story short. Did you have any doubts at that age that you would make it as a filmmaker? I'm sure I did, but I was so high off of like this first film, like it hit so hard that I was really gassed up. I was really gassed up. Like if it had been sort of a lukewarm response, I probably would have shifted into something else in the industry. I would have stopped directing. I would have taken, you know, another another job or another role in the industry. I would have always stayed in the industry, I think. I don't know what else I would do. But I might have been an exec or something like that. But it hit so hard that there was no doubt, you know. And everyone was telling me, like, you're going to do big studio films, you know, blah, blah, blah. But that's not what you wanted. That's not what I wanted at all. You know, I wanted to do, I wanted to continue to do really great indies in the vein of like my, uh, the people that I looked up to, like Spike Lee, like Martin Scorsese. But they weren't given those? No. You know, there was a window where I, I, I think, okay, so Weapons got made at a good time. Mm-hmm. After Weapons was when... Um, so that's 2007 you make this movie. Yeah, after Weapons was in the Great Re- Great Recession happened, and that at that point it was over. It was really... What was over? Indie film. It was like, there was it was dead for like a good year or so. Like, it was, it was a problem. Um, what was happening? No, nothing was getting made. All the companies were were leaving New York or shutting down like good machine. And like everybody was just closing up their New York offices, Hmm. consolidating, firing people, making less films. They started moving out to Los Angeles. Yeah. And when did you have to move to Los Angeles? You know, I stuck around as long as I possibly could in New York. (laughs) Like I really stuck it out. I was there for 13 years and um, you didn't want to leave. I didn't want to leave. I was like in the, I, I was in the mindset that like, I very much did not understand how people live outside of New York. Like I didn't get it because I've been there since I was 18. Right. It just didn't compute. Like the fact that you don't, ha- that you have to have a car, that you, you don't have public transportation, you know, that like delis and and businesses aren't open 24 hours a day but you can't like go to a bar at 4 a.m like it didn't i didn't understand it didn't compute at all like how could people live like that something i found today that i did not know you did you made uh, after weapons in 2008 you're on the set of broken flowers and you made a behind the scenes short for jim jarmusch how did that happen And, and how did you come into contact with him so we screened uh, Bomb the System for Jim because uh, we shared the same editor. Oh. Jay Rabinowitz cut almost all of Jim's films, except for uh, one was Melody London. Starting with Night on Earth, Jay did all his films. And so Jay, Jay was just, you know, he was telling Jim about the film and he was really just like effusive Jay was, Jay was like, you got to see this. Like it's, you'd love it because 
it's about all the things that you love, Jim. Like it's about graffiti and hip hop and New York. And it's, it's really rough and it's really unprofessional, but they got really <laughs> good equipment and it's a bunch of kids making it. And Jim was like, Oh, let me check that out. And so we screened it for him in a theater. We paid to like rent out a theater and project it yeah. on 35 and he loved it. And I remember he, he came and met me that night at Cherry Tavern, which was like a really sort of infamous uh, bar in the East Village back in the late 90s and early aughts. And it was like the greatest moment of my life at that point. Yeah. And what is that conversation like? I mean, I was just like super nervous and he was just super cool, like really mellow, like really just chill. And he loved the film so much. And, you know, so he had a couple, he had a couple projects. I did a couple things for him that he just threw my way just to, for me to make some money. He would just call me up and say, do you want to do this thing for coffee and cigarettes? Do you want to do this thing for broken flowers? I remember he called me up and he's like, have you heard of this thing called a DVD extra? And I'm like, yeah, of course. I love those things. He's like, I don't know what the fuck a DVD extra is. They want me to deliver like 10 of them. He's like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Can you just, can you do it for me? And I'm like, sure, dude. And so that was the conversation. <laughs> that phone call is so great. Yeah. I don't know what the fuck this is. <laughs> he, he didn't have an email address. He still doesn't have an email address to this day. <laughs> he doesn't use the internet. Like, but um he's living a, a, a much more pure life i'm sure yeah and he he had a little um he had a little office on uh i think it was 8th 7th or 8th street in the east village and you have to go down some stairs into like a sort of basement almost where the windows were like at the top that's so great and there was all kinds of mice and shit in it and it was like that's less great it was a sketchy uh it was in a really nice neighborhood at that time. The East Village was really nice, but it was like a sketchy building. It was just kind of like gross, like not well-maintained. And he was down there with two producers, well, a producer and an intern. Mm. Um, and that intern, Carter, is now his like main producer. And it was like exactly what you would picture Jim's office to be, like all his posters from all his foreign films, foreign versions of his films. Right, of course. Japanese, German... French were like all over the walls framed and just like super fucking cool. Like just looked amazing. And yeah, he just, he was just, I just did a bunch of work for him for a few years. What did you learn from him about the actual craft of filmmaking? Cause in, in, in the short documentary, he's talking about, you know, the chaos of our lives and how the most beautiful moments are ones that are not calculated or, or, or planned. Yeah, I mean, that's really his philosophy on like writing scenes. I think um, he was trying to communicate to me what Broken Flowers was about. But I think in a lot of ways, like all his movies are about that. But what I definitely learned from him on set was like to just fucking mellow out. Like he's he's so chill on set. Like he just in between takes he'll like put on Ghostface Killer on like a boombox and he'll just like kind of walk off and smoke a cigarette and come back. He doesn't yell at anybody. Nobody yells at anybody on his sets. He's the opposite of what 
of, of kind of the toxic environment that you sort of imagine movie sets would be out here in LA mm-hmm. with, or, and, and, and that you maybe have heard from like leaked audio on TMZ or whatever, people just <laughs> abusing each other. Right. Like he's just super fucking mellow. He's not David O. Russell. Yeah. And that's what I definitely learned is like, cause on bomb the system, I was like, you know, I was a little aggro, I think, which is understandable. Right. But and you're 23 and making your first movie for $500,000. Yeah. But after, after like spending time watching Jim work, I was like, you know, you don't have to be like this. Like this guy's a genius and he's, he's a master, right? Like, so this is a guy, a director that a lot of people are in, in our industry refer to as a master, right? So I'm watching a master work, but this guy is, he's, he's chill. Like he's not, he's not fucking yelling at anybody. He's not stressed out. I mean, he's all right. Jim gets stressed out. And now lately, like I've seen him really stressed out before, but he doesn't yell at people on set. He right. treats people with a lot of respect and dignity. What does work out look like? I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't pound them out. Like he's not like putting like long hours in. Like he's, he's, I think he spends a lot of time just listening to music and writing and thinking, you know? Hmm. Living a life. Yeah. But he gets he gets them done. It's not like he's a slacker, but maybe he would maybe refer to himself as a slacker, probably. <laughs> yeah, I mean, on that set, just the footage you got, I thought you did such a nice job on that. I thought it was really uh I one thought I had, I was like, did was he excited that you were doing that when you were shooting like the behind the scenes of Broken Flowers? Was he happy about that? Yeah, he was happy I was doing it. Um, because they had, they had also sent a crew uh, from Universal because Focus was putting that out. Universal, they sent a crew with like a giant camera and lights and shit, and they they shot their own thing. And Jim was like, "I want you to shoot your thing." And as you probably noticed, there was no no sync sound. Yeah, the sound was an interview that I did with him. The audio of an interview afterwards, but the 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 pictures were silent super eight. So I think that probably made him like it more because it's more like kind of taking photographs, you know? Yeah. It was, it was minimal. Yeah. Uh, you, you move on and you work on the little Wayne documentary shortly after that. I think for most people, this is probably their entry point into your body work. Is that fair to say? I, I would say so because yeah. nobody remembers bomb the system <laughs> or weapons anymore. Look, you know? maybe they do now after this podcast. Yeah, they'll revisit it. Um, let's start with the beginning of that. How does Little Wayne come into your life? So I got a call from uh, Quincy Jones the third, Quincy Jones's son, and he was a huge fan of bomb the system, and he'd been trying to he'd been trying to do get me to do a movie for him for years. And he had a hip hop video label. Uh, he put out a series called Beef, like Beef One through Five, and I mean it sold millions. Like it made him a lot, a lot of money. And so he was just churning out hip hop content, documentaries, and some narrative stuff. I think, and um he just approached me about it he said have you heard of have you heard of Lil Wayne i said of course you know i grew up <laughs> i grew up in virginia so i was a fan of the hot boys like i knew about the hot boys before wayne went solo 
and then I found out, you know, more about him when he went solo. And I wasn't the first person they approached either. They had approached other directors who were like, Lil Wayne, like, he's not interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, cause at the time he was just a real normal rapper, right? He was just a, your run of the mill gangster rapper from new Orleans. He wasn't like a Martian yet. You know, he was just starting to become weird and interesting, but I, I knew who he was. And, and I was at the time I was really, I was looking for work, Mm-hmm. Um, Were you also looking to shift into documentary filmmaking? I wasn't looking to shift into documentary. I was really working hard at trying to get narrative films off the ground, like lots and lots of different ones that I was attached to over years that didn't get made. You know, probably upwards of 20. Wow. And this came along and it was legit. It was financed. And they made it like an offer to my agent. So it it was like, boom, like it was, it was good. Right. So you were in. The film opened with a note from you that says, every documentarian should be so lucky to have a subject as, as you know, essentially as interesting as Lil Wayne. But uh, over the course of six months of filming, he never sat down for an interview. So what's happening on the set of this of this film? I think you and I have talked about it a little tiny bit, but I actually don't know too much yeah so i arrived uh, uh the first day the first official day of of principal photography like we had shot we shot a little thing and we met in boston mm-hmm. so you're 30 31 at this point no i'm 27 27 yeah it was the year my daughter was born so 28 28 and um so i had so we had met in boston i went up i remember i went up on the train from new york and i met him at a at a, a concert in Boston and and so we were we were ready to start shooting so the first the first day was in New Orleans he was shooting a movie called Hurricane Season um I think they renamed it Patriots or something mm-hmm. it was was that uh, a basketball movie yeah it was a basketball movie no I think it's called Hurricane Season yeah or at the time it was called Patriots yeah and uh it was um Bow Wow was in it right and so Is he, Martin Lawrence in that? It could be. He could be. He wasn't on set that day, but Bow Wow was. And they were in there. Um, Wayne was in his trailer, and I'm walking to set for the first, very first time. And I shot the whole thing myself. I shot that whole movie myself on a Panasonic HVX 200. And I'm walking to set the first time. I'm five minutes away from the trailer, and his manager, who's walking me over there, Cortez, goes, oh, by the way, you're not allowed to talk to him. I said, what? I was like, what? He's like, yeah, you can't talk to him. You can't ask him any questions. Don't say anything. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, that's the way it's going to be. That's the only way. Fly on the wall. That's what he said. He said, fly on the wall. Be a fly on the wall. And I was like, all right. So I was like, what the fuck? And then as soon as I walked on the tour bus, everyone on the bus was like a blood gang member, except Wayne. And, and I was like, okay, I'm not going to say shit. (laughs) All right. I'm just going to be a fly on the wall. And, and that's what I did for the whole shoot. Like that was it. I never, 
Well, I mean, I did ask, I did eventually start asking him questions and you can see it in the film. You can hear me asking him questions off camera, but that really took like six months before that even began to happen. What is the vibe when you're walking on that bus though? It's like you, 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 you're not entirely white. I don't know exactly what, 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 what is your background? Yeah. I mean, my mom's from India. My dad's white. Right. Like I definitely, I identify as a person of color, but. I'm not black and and in the south like if you're not black you're very much not black. Right. Like if you're a random brown kid you're just a fucking random brown kid like they, they don't care who you are, or, you know. You might as well be white. It's a very different sort of relationship. Race relations in the deep south are very different. Um, did, did Wayne make it clear that you were welcomed? He did. He made it clear from day one, from like the first couple hours when I was filming. I remember Bow Wow came on the bus and Bow Wow was kind of like, yo, who's that? And Wayne, um, Wayne goes, you know, that's, that's my cameraman. That's my movie. And then I, I knew from that point on, I was good. Like, because he, he had taken ownership of it. He's like, yo, that's my movie. So let him film you. And that's what he told everybody. There was no one who didn't let us film because he told everyone that they had to be in the movie. Like right. He would literally say that. He'd be like, you have to be in this or you, or you go. So, so I felt very <laughs> good. I felt very protected. You have to be in this or you go. Yeah. So I definitely felt very, very protected. But he didn't want to be asked questions. I mean, this fly on the wall approach, was that frustrating at all at times? No, it was very freeing because suddenly I didn't have to, because I mean, you know, like you're, you're going into, to do an interview or whatever, like you're, you're, there's, there's going to be anxiety about the questions that you're asking that you want to ask. Right. Um, no matter how comfortable you are with the person, you're still going to have anxiety, like, is this the right question? Right. Know. But at I that, only have mild anxiety about this interview. Well, I, I have a lot. I mean, I get a lot of anxiety when I have to interview people. And yes, it was very freeing. It was freeing. Very freeing. Give me some like highlights of the set that you remember and you look back on now. It can either be something funny or, or crazy or just something that sticks with you. I mean, everything... The, the the greatest moments are actually in the film, mm. you know, when he was in um, Atlanta in the recording studio and, and he uh, talked about losing his virginity for the first time. That was amazing. That was in the film. There was one great moment, like I've never gotten to meet Diddy again, but I've always wanted to thank him because we were, we were on set of a music video in LA, like very early on in, in, the, in the filming and Wayne was like, Wayne hated the lav. He'd always like take it off and ditch it. And why? He just hated it. He just didn't like it. And um, we're on set of this Cassie video, and Wayne was, uh, you know, guesting on this on this Cassie song, this really bad R and B song. And Diddy, you know, he was he was married to Cassie for a long time. I think they just got divorced, but Diddy was there. And I remember we're filming and Wayne told, tells Diddy, he's like, yo, this is my camera. Like, you gotta, you gotta say something for the camera, you know? 
like, you got to be in my movie. He's telling Diddy. And so Diddy's like, really, he's like hamming it up for the camera. And I remember he turns to Wayne and he goes, where's your love? And Wayne's like, like, I, he's like, I ditched it. And Diddy's like, you need to put that on because you got a weird voice and a thick accent and no one's going to be able to hear you or understand you. And Wayne was like, oh, true. And so he put the lav on. And so he kind of like sunk in at that point. And I was like, you know, I've got to thank Diddy for that. <laughs> this whole movie would have been completely indecipherable. Yeah, if it wasn't for Diddy. Also, it has to be Diddy to say that. Like no one else can say that to him. Yeah. If anyone else, he'd be like, "What the f- like? Fuck off!" Yeah. <laughs> so that was that was a that was a great moment. You grew up loving hip hop, and I, and I I know it's like a, a vital part of your life. Is making that movie one of the highlights of your career in terms of being able to actualize a lot of your childhood dreams of doing something in hip hop? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's the highlight of my career in every every uh, sense. Oh. Like, I don't think I'll I'll make a better movie than that ever. I think that that movie was like catching lightning in a bottle. I don't think you know. For years after that, people were kept trying to get me to to imitate that, to do that again. But you know, I eventually realized that you can't. It was it was really kismet. It was like right place, right time with a camera, and I did the right thing. I just sat there and filmed. I didn't try to interject or intervene. And, you know, it was really, it was, it was really just, that was it. Like for me, that was the best, that's the greatest film I'll ever make. <laughs> really? Yeah. You think, you think there's no chance of you making a better movie? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think there, the odds are very, very low. Wow. Yeah. When did you come to that conclusion? A couple years ago. Because that movie comes out, the response is positive, obviously, but... I want to know, you have a kid the year you're making that film. You're shifting into documentaries. What happens to your life after that film comes out? Well, after that, I um, I sell a script to Universal and I get into the WGA. I sold, there's a true story, a gangster, a crack dealer in the Bronx 1986 named Larry Davis who shot six cops, six NYPD cops, who came to raid his apartment, and then he got off on self-defense. He was represented by William Kunstler, who was like a legendary lawyer, who um, represented a lot of Black Panthers. He represented Al-Qaeda after the world, first World Trade bombing. Like He was a, a legend, he was, and he got him off on self-defense. And it's like a, it's a pretty amazing story, but... Um, I, I sold the script. I sold a pitch to Universal with uh, Robert De Niro. De Niro was attached to play the lead. Um, they wanted Spike Lee to direct it. What was this? Uh, it was called Police and Thieves. And, you know, I got into the WGA. It was like a six-figure deal. And, yeah, I was pretty stoked about it. I spent like a, two years writing that script. So your goal still at this point is to make narrative feature films absolutely 100 percent. so i spent two years researching and writing the script and then they they put it in a turnaround hmm. but it's it's strange because looking at your imdb i think a lot of people would be like well 
he just made documentaries after that. Is there a moment where you decide to, to pivot? Yeah. Yeah, the moment I decided to pivot was the year that I moved here, which was six years ago. And I was like, you know, there was there was one more project that fell apart, and it was a project that actually was announced. You probably saw it on there with that I was doing with Chloe Savaney and Mark Weber, and um, it was a script by Adam Mansback, same writer who did Angry Black White Boy. He's actually a New York Times bestseller for this book called Go the Fuck to Sleep, mm. which is like a joke children's book for right. parents. <laughs> it, it's made him like a millionaire, and he wrote it in like an hour. And self, like, like nobody would put it out. He put it out independently and it like went viral. Good on him. So he wrote this great, he wrote this amazing script about a married couple whose relationship is fracturing and they go to this like island off the coast of Italy and get in, intertwined in this weird relationship with another couple. And, you know, we were supposed to make that, you know, we cast Chloe and Mark and then we announced it at Sundance and then again, same thing. Couldn't get the financing. Financing never came together. Is that what's always the problem in, in these films it's, that you write? It's always, that's the, always the problem. And then with that one, then Chloe bailed out of it. And, you know, it's like actors also start bailing off of things. And then the financing, you may have, you might have a piece of it. And then the financing goes away. But in that case, Chloe bailed off it. So we, we replaced her with Amber Heard. But Amber Heard wanted to rewrite the whole script. So like we spent like months at her apartment in West Hollywood, like rewriting the script for her. And then you, you do. Well, me and Adam Mansback. Hmm. So the three of you, you two are going to Amber Heard's apartment to rewrite a script that still doesn't have a backing. Still doesn't have finance. To tailor to an actress who wants it to be different. Yeah. What, how, how do you do, are you all right doing that? I mean, it was, it's gotta be strange. I think that's the thing I'm, I'm thinking. I'm like, that's a strange dynamic. It sucked. <laughs> it sucks. You'd rather be I, like, well, I, I can't say that. Yeah. You'd rather be just making the movie. Right. And it's very frustrating. What you, were her demands? You know, I can't remember. I mean, some of it I agree with, but some of it was just kind of unnecessary. Some of it, I just wondered if she just wanted to, to sort of, change it for herself for her own ego and you know but at that point um the option on the the script lapsed and then the the producers who were paying adam for this for the option uh they couldn't get the financing together so they decided to just let the option go mm. and so it fell apart and at that point, I was just like insanely frustrated. And I was like, you know what? Fuck this. Like, I can't, I'm tired of dealing with actors. I'm tired of dealing with talent. I'm tired of dealing with like financiers and producers. So you had uh, dozens of false starts, essentially. Dozens. Yeah. Dozens. How do you stay sane in all that? I don't know, man. I don't know. I mean, my family, you know. I'm still doing, I'm doing a lot of writing gigs at that time. Like I sold another thing to uh, WWE, a film. I sold a film to them and I, and I wrote that. I sold a pitch and I wrote that. I sold like another horror pitch and I wrote that. And um, I optioned a script to um, 
Dave Gordon Green and Ed Pressman. And, you know, that was, that was a, that was a pretty decent option. And again, they could, they, that was the one you probably see online. That was the one Marilyn Manson was going to do with Evan Rachel Wood. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they broke up. And so that thing fell apart, but you know, I was getting paid off the option for a few years off of that one. So, you know, I'm, it's like family, but at that point, you know, I'm like, I just want to make, make films, you know? So that's when I really transitioned into documentary. And then, and then I remember there was one point where I looked, I sat, I sat back and I thought about, and I was like, oh, I haven't thought about a narrative project in a year. It's been 12 months. I haven't thought about one. So, you know, that's it. That was you wiping it clean. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm impressed. I actually didn't know this about you. This sort of trajectory, I, I I felt it maybe a little bit, but I didn't know the details of it. I'm impressed that you uh, got through it. That you got through it and and weren't so like dejected, and didn't you know didn't feel like you had to leave the industry. I don't because I don't think a lot of people would have would have weathered the storm like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, documentary really kind of saved me. In that sense. Did you think it was going to? I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, you know, that was the that was the idea. Mm. Did did people, uh, like, start offering you gigs soon after that in, in, in that format? Not really. You had to create your own. Yeah, yeah. Everything was, was me creating my own content. And I didn't really get offered gigs until very recently for docs really after the new radical came out in Sundance last year. Then I started getting calls. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's go through that movie. Cause that's, that's where I, I met you. And I still think that film has not received its proper due. How do you get involved in that project? That one came out of the, it really came out of the ashes of another project. Um, so there was a project that I was developing that was, basically about three startup companies that were going to change the world. And one was Defense Distributed, one was Oculus VR, and one was Soylent. Mm. So we had all three companies on board of this project, and we were going out for financing. And we had some interest. And then first Oculus backed out because they got like a shit ton of money. This was way before they sold to Facebook. It was when they were just like a little, a little like team down in um, Orange County. And so they, they backed out there. They were just like, look, we just, I think they got like $80 million. And um, um, what's his name? Dude, I was dealing with, I forget his name, but he was like, yeah, sorry, I can't, we can't do it anymore. And I was like, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And you're kind of like not a startup anymore. If you just got $80 million, so kind of doesn't feel apt. And then Soylent then backed out. Mm. Soylent backed out in a really kind of disappointing way. Really, a couple of days before we were set to start shooting with them, a vice, a, like a motherboard piece video came out about them. And in the video, they caught, actually, while they were interviewing the guy, Rob Reinhardt, like the CEO, like behind him, like, a mouse like ran across 
the like behind the camera and into like the batch of like ingredients and and they made a whole big deal of it and vice so after that like people were like like freaking out it went viral and like kind of as as a joke almost so rob reinhardt was like hey so uh we're not gonna do your movie anymore (laughs) um because uh we're kind of fucked and we don't want cameras around anymore and so he backed out so who was left cody wilson you know so we but you know can't make a movie we can't we couldn't do that movie anymore we tried to we i met with a few other companies we tried to replace them it didn't happen so about a year or so later uh, i'm down at south by southwest and i go out i meet up with cody for drinks and he's like you know whatever happened to that movie like we should do something i got some there's a lot of crazy shit going on right now with with me and my life right now and i was like you know what like let me let me pitch this let me pitch this like you know doing a movie with just you like let me let me let me see if there's any interest there then and and there was lo and behold what happened was i met a financier actually that year at that south by southwest i met this guy greg who so I was there with the the hot sugar movie and you know, so I'm at a party with Heems from Das Racist for this movie called Creative Control that Heems was was in. And Heems is like, yo, you gotta meet this dude Greg, who uh produced and financed the film. And and I was like Right. Okay, so this he introduced uh, Ben Dickens' movie. Yeah, yeah. So he introduces me to Greg and Greg's like Greg's like, you know what? I'm I think I might be the biggest fan of the Carter in the world. And I was like, really? It's just, he's just like this, you know, white dude, like finance dude from Toronto. <laughs> and he's like, dude, I actually, last night I was watching that movie and smoking a joint. Like I, I'm completely obsessed with that movie and I have like a billion questions to ask you. And I was like, okay, cool. So let's, let's link up. So we met up and, you know, got Mexican food like the next day we talked for like four hours about the the movie about the carter and then he's like all right so what are you doing next because i'll finance it and i was like why don't you come meet this guy cody wilson so we met with cody the next day at the driscoll and that was pretty much it it was like boom we're we're like greg was like i'm i'm in wow and the financing was was set are those pitches strange to, to make, or are they just? I mean, what's going through your head? That he, wasn't even a pitch. It was like honestly, it, it was, was easy. It wasn't even a pitch. Like I've done a million pitches, especially the past year. I've just been around. I've been everywhere. I've been, you know, I've you know gone into you gone into a room and pitched Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, you know, HBO. I, I've done I've done it all. This was like a guy who was just like really a fan and was like you know i want to make a movie with you and he he actually had had a lot of success he was very rare for an indie financier he did two andrew bajowski movies that both sold to magnolia and and the advance was more than the budget and then creative control which sold for a lot of money to amazon and he made back more than the budget but then that movie kind of just faded they they really did a poor job of putting it out but it didn't matter greg had made money on three films in a row 
which is very rare for uh, an right. indie financier. Doesn't happen very often. Yeah. So he he finances this movie. You and Cody go off. Why don't you give context for people who have not seen it? So it began. I mean, it began as a, a looking at you know Cody Wilson, who was uh, at the time he was a twenty five year old law law school dropout who had crowdfunded the first 3D printed gun and his crowdfunder he basically it got no attention i think he made like 6 bucks and until indiegogo decided to pull it down and now they'd never done that before so that made like the front page of like wired like hey crowdfunder is it's sort of like one of the very first examples of like what's really happening a lot now with like Silicon Valley taking down stuff they don't like mm-hmm. hindering speech. Right. And you know, so once that happened, he got a ton of attention and then he got like some guy sent him $50,000 just to buy a 3d printer. And the attention he got was, was, was interesting because it, he was incredibly well-spoken. And so that was Cody Wilson. And the first shoot like day three of the first shoot is when he he gets on skype with this guy amir taki who was there at the beginning of bitcoin he's one of the one of the first like coders uh, of of bitcoin and kind of a notorious figure some people had said there were rumors that he was satoshi nakamoto this the inventor of bitcoin right he goes Mm -hmm. by this alias he or she or they go by this alias satoshi nakamoto there were rumors that that was amir and he lives in a squat in London and he, he has no bank account. He has no money. He just lives like out of the trash really at the, at that time. And he's a real anarchist. And so they were on the Skype call talking about this new thing they were doing called dark wallet, which Cody explained to me was basically money laundering software. At the time, the Silk Road was really big and there was all this, talk about like you know how can we successfully use the silk road and not be traced not have our transactions traced so the dark wallet they were trying to create that mm-hmm. and immediately i just i felt like amir was a character and i was like can you put me in touch with them can i, I want to go film with them in london so cody put me in touch with amir and amir became a huge part of the project then so then it became about like both both these guys People seem to have an issue with, I guess, I don't know how you, how we describe it now. It's been a couple of years, but it, it seemed to be the ethics or maybe the morality of these two, um, I was going to say characters, but they're people, these two people. Are you, when you know, when you're shooting, I guess this is a bigger conversation about documentary filmmaking. Are you doing your best to reserve judgment when you're with these people for long hours? Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely reserve reserve judgment. I mean, who am I to judge? Who am I to judge what they're doing? Right. Because I, th- I, mean, I think some people would say that uh, some of Cody's practices were are dangerous. Right. I and and I would agree with that. <laughs> no, I'm I, I I'm I'm of a I don't know. I'm torn because when we sat down, that's when we first met. It was the three of us. I remember it was some, we had breakfast at Sundance. Yeah. Yeah. At the Marriott. Yeah. And 
That was one of the most fun interviews I've done in such a long time. I think it's the reason we all exchange information after is because it seemed like we were having a pretty spirited back and forth on the issue. And you two were not in alignment at all. Right. He would say something and you would disagree with it. And you would say something and he would disagree with it. And I was kind of just there somewhat facilitating the, the, the dialogue. So you don't, you're not, um, I guess my point is it's fine if you're in, you know, a different position as your subject. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's, that's in some ways that's more interesting. Hmm. Like I like to talk to people who I disagree with. A lot of people don't. Right. Right. Especially now. But I, I find that to be more interesting. If somebody says something that I disagree with and instead of being turned off, I say, huh, that's interesting. That's an interesting position. Tell me more about that. Mm. Why do you think like that? Right. Did you interrogate him? when you're not shooting about some of these ideas, I think maybe my central question is like, do you feel you have some obligation to be careful about what you're putting on screen? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think I do. And I think I do. I think I am careful about what I'm putting on screen. I think it's just that we, me and some critics have a disagreement about that because <laughs> I think I am being careful, right? There's something you'd like to say, but it, you're, you're withholding it. I don't, you know, this is a free platform here. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of the words, but you know what it is? I'm trying to think of an example of a film where I thought they weren't being careful, where I thought they were being egregious and I can't think of it I can't think of one at the moment but I'm trying to think of an example that I can give you but I think there's there's levels to it right mm. you're trying to think of a film where they the critics were egregious no no where the filmmaker oh the filmmaker was I mean maybe a film with just absolute gratuitous gun violence mm-hmm. right people just being murdered on screen I mean look it's a I made a documentary you know it's not you know, I'm not showing cannibalism or whatever. Like, right. I, I don't know. But don't people know. still accused you of promoting some of Cody's ideology. I mean, that, that I read those reviews. That was They weren't mine. I have a different take on it. But I think I was more on the positive spectrum than a lot of people. Yeah, people did, people did say that. And I understand that. The thought process that goes into these people's heads is that once you put somebody on camera saying anything, even though I was interrogating him in, in the interview on camera, and I did put a counter viewpoint. But once you even have that person saying anything, that you're suddenly promoting them. Right. You're giving them a platform. Yeah. So you shouldn't even film with them. Just ignore them like they don't exist. That's, mm-hmm. I think that's the thought process. If I can get into the heads of those, those critics... And what do you think of that thought process? I think it's cowardly. I think it's, I think it's, uh, I think it's dangerous, actually. I think it's dangerous. Like, no, like you, first of all, let's just talk from a strict, a strictly just from a communication standpoint, right? Of us being humans in the world. 
like we should all be talking to each other, right? Discourse is important, especially between people who don't see eye to eye, who are, come from different places, right? Like, so let's just start there. Like, I think that's important. That's a value that I, that I have that I, that I think is very important. Mm. Second of all, let's talk about the danger of it. What, there is danger to sticking your head in the sand and just hoping someone's going to go away and not, you know, shining a light on them. You know, I, I always say like, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? That's just, that's my viewpoint. And, and, and I know, I, I know I, I look, it's been two years now and I've done another movie, right? The alt-right movie. And so I know that, um, that I don't share the same feelings about that as a lot of people in this city and in New York too. You're, you're why are you specifying coastal elites, man, coastal elites. That's what it is. Yeah. It's coastal elites and it's mostly white coastal elites. Like with the all right movie, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get into that in a bit, but it was only white people who chastised me for giving the all right a so-called platform. Like, I can't tell you how many black people came up to me after the screening, the screenings, and shook my hand and said, thank you for making that film. Hmm. Like, just think about that for a second. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out why that is. Why is it only white people coming up to you? Or why is it only white people uh, chastising you, rather? Yeah. I don't know. It was consistent. Consistent. A hundred percent consistent. Yeah. Coastal elites is a term I think I've only heard on Fox News. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry for bringing that onto your show. <laughs> no, no. Look, it's, it's totally fine. I, there's no judgment here. I, I don't think you're wrong. I'm just, I've never heard you say that before. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's clearly stuck in you. Well, I was, I was upset by the backlash to the new radical because I'm like, this is my town. Like I'm an Angelino. Like this, this is my, this is my town. Like why are, and the people, the critics who were the worst to me were, were other Los Angeles Mm -hmm. critics. So that, that upset me because I'm like, this, this is my fucking town. Like, like we're, we're the same. Like we're brother and sister, like, Mm. but we're not. And that's, that's what I kind of figured out. You you figured out that brotherhood in Los Angeles doesn't exist? No, no, it does. Absolutely. But I figured out that they don't want me, right? Mm. Maybe, maybe I'm like exaggerating a little bit, but... I mean, no, if you feel that way, you feel that way. Why do they not want you? Because the way things are right now in this moment in time is that um, you have to toe the party line. Like you can't stray from it at all. If you do, you're a bad guy. Mm. And people think you're a bad guy because you stray. Yeah. I mean, and the way that it's put to you is, look, like, we understand you have your free speech and, and, and deep down we agree that you can make a movie about whatever you want, right? Because that's art. It's expression. But at this point in time, there's too much at stake. It's what they always say. There's too much at stake. Who's saying that? Well... Critics, but also just people in general. You're talking about producers and financing. Not so much financiers, I think. Um, producers, people in the industry, uh, journalists, writers. I mean, even people that I, you know, interviewed, like Antifa activists that I interviewed in for the alt right movie. Mm-hmm. Like, there's too much at stake. You know, when I ask, 
you know, when I ask this, you know, Antifa activist why they're practicing deplatforming on people who aren't even in the alt right, they're just conservatives. Why they're deplatforming them and scre- screaming them, yelling them down from giving a speech? There's too much at stake. Mm-hmm. That's that's always what's being used. What do you think that means? Trump, right? The country. The country is like, if you don't tow the party line, if you don't help us, like, you're you're helping them. You're helping Trump. <laughs> I mean, there's giant leaps of logic going on right now, right? Right. Giant leaps of logic. Like, if you're a conservative and you're giving a speech, they somehow link that through some crazy train of thought to you're a Nazi and you're defending Trump. Hmm. Did you arrive at these conclusions in making your latest film, uh, you know, Alt-Right, Age of Rage? Absolutely. I was blindsided by the uh, backlash to The New Radical because here's the thing. When we made The New Radical, it was like, when Obama was president, it was edgy. It was different. But Cody and and his ilk, they weren't a threat under Obama. They weren't a threat. When Trump won, they suddenly became a threat because they're team Trump, right? Like it's almost like I I equate it almost to Goodfellas. Like I actually think the new radical has a lot in common with Goodfellas. Hmm. I actually sort of modeled it in, in a lot of ways in the edit room off of Goodfellas. But it's like the, you, you know, you rooted for the bad guys in Goodfellas, right? They're bad people. They're not good people, but you're rooting for them, right? You're rooting for Henry Hill. Right. But it's almost like... Though, in, in that case, it's not like there's anyone else to really root for. It's not like there's an alternate in Goodfellas. It's like, and here's the good guy. It's yeah. like they're all bad. You're not rooting for the cops, right? But <laughs> That's such a boring... I don't want to root for that. I mean, that's nothing. But here's the thing. In Goodfellas, you're rooting for the bad guys, but they're the bad guys. They're always on the fringe, right? right? In the New Radical, it was it was the same thing until Trump became president. Suddenly, they weren't on the fringe anymore. They were part of the mainstream. Mm-hmm. But and, don't you think that's because they supported something that was not on the fringe in Trump? And and also, the thing that bothered me about their support of Trump, or at least Cody uh, uh, Wilson's support, is that he is a very smart guy. You know this better than most people. I know this from the very limited time I've spoken to him. Yeah. You watch his interviews. He's a very smart person. And I don't believe in his heart that he's actually honestly supporting Donald Trump. I think he's doing it as an intellectual argument or as an argument for the sake of of not vanity but publicity. And that bothered me. I would say even more so what um, what's disappointing about Cody Cody's stance on Trump, and I've told him this to his face. I got this on camera. You know, I said, um, if Trump turns on the on on the Second Amendment on you guys, and are you gonna are you gonna like put him on blast on Twitter like you did to Obama constantly? And he said, yeah, yeah, of course I am, and he never did. He never said anything about Trump, anything bad about Trump on Twitter. And, you know, I think it was honestly because of his, the people who buy ghost gunners, like he didn't want to piss them off. Right. And I think that's lame. And I told him that I, I told him every time I'd see him, I, when are you going to, when are you going to fucking, 
when are you going to put Trump on blast? Like you're supposed to be an anarchist. Like when are you going to, mm-hmm. when are you going to go at Trump? You never mentioned anything. You never said anything. Because mm. he needs to run a business. Yeah. And he's chosen that. People who have not seen alt-right age of rage now online or it's about to be online, right? It's coming out on DVD. October 30th, DVD, Blu-ray, and then VOD, iTunes, Google Play, all that. Same day. Yeah. So there's going to be an opportunity for people to really watch this movie. It didn't have as much of a theatrical run as it probably should have. Just go through a brief log line of what this movie is. I mean, really what the movie's about is it's about the polar extremes of our country, but through the microcosm, through the lens of alt-right, the alt-right movement, and the Antifa movement. So it's set up almost like a battle between the two over the course of the year, and the battle ends in Charlottesville. Mm. What did you learn? Well, what I learned from, from that movie in particular, I mean, I learned a ton about these fringe groups, obviously. I learned that there's, there's a serious argument going on in this country over free speech, I think it's really interesting. Um, it, but I remember you saying, I mean, were there people you wanted to interview that you could not interview for the project? Yeah. It was uh, Milo. Right. Milo was agreed, initially agreed to be in the movie. And then like a week before we were going down to Miami to film with him, that whole pedophile thing came out. Right. And so he went into like basically defense, defense mode. And he shut everything down. Mm-hmm. And what uh, happened with him? Nothing. He he basically the pedophile thing destroyed him. And then he came back. He sort of resurfaced, and he was sort of acting like he had gotten started a new company and got a bunch of money. But I I haven't heard anything from him. Mm. I think he's just he's kind of just disappeared off the face of the earth. Right. That comment kind of uh yeah ended it. That movie, um, you're dealing with some people that I think a lot of people listening to this podcast would not want to deal with. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, I think that's fair to say about a lot of my films. (laughs) It's funny because I got a comment. I I remember it was Bomb the System, my first film. I remember screening it in Seattle. And this person in the audience asking me like, why I would want to make a movie about such disgusting people, graffiti writers, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess I've I've been like kind of like telling stories about people on the fringe. Do you have an answer to that question? Again, I find them fascinating. I find them really interesting. Maybe because my life's pretty boring. Like I find these I find these people's lives like really interesting. Like why do they live their life like that? You think your life is boring? I think my life's pretty boring, yeah. <laughs> based on what? Especially now. I mean, based on based on their lives, maybe. Mm, I mean, if, if you're comparing. Yeah, I mean, just in general, my life's pretty boring. Well, yeah. if you're going to compare it to Little Wayne, I think it's pretty tough to, to, to out-entertain him. I mean, that's pretty tough. Yeah. Well, I find these people fascinating. Um, you know, a lot of people make a lot of, make really great documentaries about very normal people going through everyday struggles, right? Like mm-hmm. salesman, you know, salesman's one of my favorite films. Mm-hmm. And, but 
and I've thought about that. Like, oh, I'd love to make a movie like that, but it, it's, I've never really done it. I've never really set out to do that. To You're just, fascinated by the spectacle. I'm fascinated by people on the fringe, by people on the extreme, by famous people. I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely fascinated by famous people. Mm. Why is that? I think fame is a disease. I think like when we look back, like hundreds of years, when we look back at, uh, at our society now, we're going to see fame as like as a disease. Like you caught fame. He caught fame and he died, you know? I've not heard this theory before. I like this. Go on. I, I mean, think about like Michael Jackson, for example, you know, mm. like fame has a way you sort of catch it like a disease and then it slowly kill or quickly kills you. Right. Um, or at it, least kills your spirit. Yeah. And it does this to everyone, almost everyone. I mean, I can't, I, I can't think, and I'm talking fame, fame, really famous people, not like just micro fame, but like not, none of them are stable. And so they're really interesting people. You're talking like George Clooney fame. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're very interesting. I think it's very interesting. It's funny you say George Clooney because somebody asked me a few years ago if I would do a movie about George Clooney. And I said, of course I would. Yeah. That'd be interesting. Like, but like a movie like The Carter. Like, but he would never do that. You know, he w- yeah, probably not. Probably I, don't, I don't think he would do that. I don't think so. Of all the people, I thought of him first because in my head, and I think in terms of like America, they see George Clooney as someone who is at least vaguely stable. Yeah. He seems of all of them, he seems vaguely stable. But then you look around and it gets, you know, waves of stability. Yeah. Peaks and valleys. I don't know. Now I'm thinking about the idea of it being a disease. So that, that's my theory. But I'm interested. I'm interested in, in, in people on the extreme. Have you ever asked someone who is that famous if they think it's a disease? No, I haven't. But that's a good question. Yeah. I wonder, have you ever, you were maybe not asked him that, but had a conversation about fame i mean especially with wayne yeah was there ever a conversation you had about definitely i think we had numerous conversations about that and wayne you know it wasn't until after i made the movie like looking back on it that i saw him in a different light he had he actually has a lot of similarities to michael jackson he's you know he's because he's been in the spotlight since he was eight years old so he didn't really have a childhood definitely not a normal one. Mm. Um, so he's kind of like a big kid, just sort of trapped in this adult body. Right. And I think you can see that now even with like, you know, him skateboarding. Yeah. And playing video games and like, just, he's like a big kid. This could be uh, wrong, but I have a sense that given we've just gone through your body of work and your experiences, that you've had a lot of unexpected interactions with people that um, are in the place to give you advice. I could be wrong, but I'm thinking about Jim Jarmusch and, and, and a bunch of others. You know, you're turning 40 next year. When you think about this profession as a whole, what's a piece of advice that you receive that you um, hold on to? Oh man, that's a good question. You know, I think it was 
the first thing I kind of thought about was Dave Gordon Green telling me that you, you always got to have a lot of balls in the air. And, and I feel like I've, I've now, now that we're talking, it's like, I've, I've always tried to do that. Like I've always had like 10 things going at once because I don't know, you kind of, you don't know if any of them are ever going to stick. Mm-hmm. You know, he told me that very early on and then I've been, I've been told the opposite by, um, my agents, it kind of drives them crazy. Like they're just like, you've got too many projects going, like you're going to like kind of defeat yourself. Like they're going to cro- they're going to cancel each other out, which kind of makes me think like, are they right? Or is David right? Mm. So who do you think is right? I don't know. Maybe nobody's, nobody's right. <laughs> I guess you'd just have to figure out what's right for you. Yeah. Mm. In terms of the false starts in, in making movies, do you feel like you have a better grasp on the business of Hollywood in a larger sense? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think that, so Malcolm Spellman is a good friend of mine. He, he's a writer producer on empire Mm. and he's probably one of my oldest friends in the, in the industry. I met him like the first week on my first trip to LA because I was attached to direct a script of his that never got off the ground. We never even really went out with it. It was, it, it, it needed too much work, but we stayed friends. And, you know, recently, so he's doing the first Apple show, Apple's first narrative show. It's him and his wife. It's their project. And, you know, I remember him telling me, they got it. They got an insane amount of money for that. Like they're they're up at Paramount. I just saw them yesterday. They're they're on the lot at Paramount. They have like a whole office with a huge writers' room, and the the uh, budget for each episode is is insane. It's really stupid. Hmm. But I remember him telling me, and I think this is this is a lot of the way the industry works is in order to get that move to get that series green lit they had to stack it to the point with, with cast, with pieces of cast and everything and talent and writers and everything to the point where nobody could say no. And then they got an offer from Netflix. And then as soon as Netflix gave them an offer, Apple came in and like doubled it. And that's really the way it works. It's like you have to put these people in the position where they just can't say no. They just can't. Because all people want to do all day is just say no. All the the execs, they're scared. They don't want to lose their job. They don't want to take a gamble on something that is going to fail. In order for them to keep their cushy job and their nice little paycheck, they don't have to make anything. Like at all, all year. They can do nothing. But if they make something and it fails miserably, then they're gone. They're out of a job. So they'd rather not make anything. So really, you're only gonna you're only gonna get something sold if it's like if it's impossible to say no to. Sold and made. Sold and made. If it's impossible to say no to. 
that's that's I think really with this, with the studio system. That's I think that's the only way that it works. I think with with financiers and private equity, it's a little different. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a better it's a better world. You have you have a lot of financiers that don't really care if they make their money back. They just want to be a part of something cool. Yeah. So make something that they can't say no to. Yeah. Or, or get it set up. Mm-hmm. You know, get it to the point where it's like they can't, they can't say no. Do you think you've done that? I think I've done that with some scripts that I've sold, right? So when I think about the Larry Davis thing, which wasn't even my idea, right? It was a team of producers who had put that thing together and they were just missing a writer and they were looking for somebody who would, who was like new and hot at the moment. And I was just coming off of like a couple big Sundance things. And so they just put me on it and we did a pitch and that was it. But it was, it was primed. Everything was like everything was set up perfectly so that the studio couldn't couldn't pass on the pitch. Right. That's the way it happened. And that's the way I feel like it always happens. Hmm. The studio question would be, what do you want to do next? But my question is, what do you want to do with the time you have to make movies and the place you're at in making these movies? What do you want for yourself? Yeah. I really want to do a big doc series right now. Like I think it would be really cool to have a large budget doc series with a lot of episodes that could go you know that that could that would take a couple years to do with like really deep research, deep archival, a lot of shooting, a lot of staff and you know that would that would you know make a really big mark, like be, you know, a big, uh, series on, on Netflix or HBO or whatever. Mm. So that's, that's really what I want to do next. Um, does this work make you happy? It does when I'm doing it. Documentary. That's the other thing that I, that I think we haven't talked about is like documentary is immensely more, makes me more happy to do than uh, narrative. I think that the dealing with actors is, it's really tough. And when you remove that aspect, like what I like is storytelling. And, and, you know, so when you remove the aspect of like dealing with actors and you're just telling stories with just a camera and subjects Mm -hmm. um, in a documentary, it's, it's, it's very rewarding. Mm. The first video you uploaded to YouTube was uh, a two, maybe four minute short film of Tarkovsky on cinema. And the quote that stuck with me is, is I think one of the first lines he says, which is cinema is an unhappy art because it depends on money. And I was thinking a version of you decided to make that your first YouTube video that you put online. I guess 
now that you are where you are on the other end of having made so many movies, do you think it's possible to be happy making film? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that I was, I was definitely not happy doing narrative uh, projects. Um, I was just always a ball of stress. And maybe that also had to do with my maturity level at that point. But I think that I've had a lot of great times on set, especially with the last uh, couple projects, you know, with the, with the new radical, especially, you know, we had a lot of, we had a lot of really great times. And then with, you know, with, with previous projects as well. I mean, um, with the Carter and that's, that's, that's stuff that it leaves you very fulfilled at the end of the day. Like you got a bunch of great stuff. Otherwise it's like, why are you doing it? You know, that's kind of my question. If you're not happy or fulfilled from the work, then it's like, why then really? Yeah. Why are you doing it? Well, I'm glad that you still are doing it and that, uh, it doesn't seem you'll be stopping anytime soon. Yeah. I, I, I hope not. I hope I'm able to, to just continue to, uh, I mean, that's the thing too, is like, I really, you know, I met Albert Mazels a couple years ago and, um, well, he, he passed away, but I met him uh, two or two or three years before he, he died. I actually stayed in his apartment and he, he's like in his eighties and still shooting docs. Hmm. So you know, that definitely gives me a ton of inspiration. Yeah. You, you know? You can be 80 and keep shooting. Yeah, you can be 80 and still making and telling stories. Hmm. Well, we'll have to check back in at that point. Adam, thank you so much for coming on. Awesome. Thank you. Adam's latest film, Alt-Right, Age of Rage, is out on VOD and Blu-ray this Tuesday. If you'd like to check out The Carter, a film we talked about on this show, it's available for free on YouTube. The new radical weapons and bomb system, I believe, can be found on Amazon Prime, iTunes, and a few other different spots. If you'd like to learn more about Adam, you can visit our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. On there is the back catalog of this podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, give it a review on iTunes, share it on social media. Doing this is the best way for new listeners to find the show. As always, Talk Easy is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Senoy. Our associate producer is Elliot Weintraub, and the show is produced by Dylan Peck. I'm San Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week.
the tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry and me. I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 